0: His blessed songs, mommy's here, Daddy's gone. Broken promises, gin and rye. All the mean and hurtful things that make baby Jesus cry.
1: Welcome to Movies with Gravy, a podcast with all the fixins. I'm your host, Billy Ray Bruton. Gang, I am super excited about today's episode. I get excited anytime I get to bring friends on the show to just talk horror, and that's what we're gonna do today. Today is all about two things. The Black Phone and Graham Skipper. <laughs> we'll, be we'll be discussing the new Scott Derrickson horror film, The Black Phone, and the films we believe inspired it, as well as a quick roundup from the Chattanooga Film Festival. And joining us for this discussion, he's the host of the new Night School podcast, an actor, filmmaker, and Movies with Gravy alum. And he is the screenwriter behind The Black Phone, as well as Doctor Strange, Sinister, and a whole lot of awesome novels. And he might have even once played the Mark Harmon role in a drunken stage reading of summer school. It's Graham Skipper and C. Robert Cargo. Graham Cargill, welcome.
0: Hi. Hello, hello. Thank you um, for having me.
1: So you're both in Austin. Uh, how, how are things going in Austin right now? Is it 180 degrees?
0: Uh, not it this is- week, not this <laughs> yeah, week. Yeah, we, we had a We had a big rainstorm yesterday, uh, which cooled things down to a manageable 95. Mm-hmm. God. Yeah. I love
1: Austin. The weather would kill me.
2: Well, I mean, the weather you, there's three months of the weather where you're just like, I'm going to spend those three months indoors. And maybe if it's nice every once in a while, I'll go out in the evening. But the, the other nine months are great because the winter is very mild. And, you know, the spring and fall are fantastic. So
1: I feel like Seattle's the exact opposite where we have 3 months of of okay weather and then 9 months of just intolerable wetness and coldness.
2: Yeah. So which
1: I'm okay with. That's my that's my bag. Um, if that's
2: your if that if that if you if the London lifestyle is your thing then 100%. Uh that's one of the nice that's one of my favorite jokes that the English tell uh, about their own weather is that summer is their favorite day of the year. Um,
1: <laughs> That sounds about right. I have I have some friends in the UK that I I Zoom with regularly, and I feel like every single time we're there, it's just pouring down rain in the background nonstop.
2: I remember going to Fright Fest, and I was like, how is it simultaneously hot and constantly raining here? I don't understand this.
1: <laughs> oh, I do love London, though. I would move there in a heartbeat, especially since this country just seems to devolve more and more day by day. And y'all live in Texas, so you know it better than anybody. Oh, Christ Oh, almighty. boy, howdy. Boy, howdy. If you want an abortion or you're a trans, get the fuck out.
2: I mean, you, you talk about that. We're getting crazier by the day. We literally just had uh, our, by the way, corrupt and under indictment Attorney General talk about how he will defend Texas's sodomy law if if it were to be overturned. Uh, But the thing that's important about Texas's sodomy law, most people don't know this because it was so unenforced for a while. But any act outside of missionary was considered sodomy in the state of Texas. So Ken Paxton is saying that I'm going to be criminalized again. I spent 11 years of my life uh, performing thousands of technically illegal sexual acts uh before it was finally overturned in 2003 there's people that are like oh the sodomy law it's about homosexuality it was like it was about that but how they did that was criminalized everything but uh, but but missionary so it's job freaky any hand job any freaky a little ass play uh, sodomy um you know and so technically he's gonna enforce that on all of us Texans
1: oh that's going to work out real well. How really? I, I'm just curious how how long is it going to take for this like this brand of hysteria to just go away? Because obviously, the majority of Americans are not in favor of you know are not pro life, and a majority of Americans are not anti LGBTQ. So, how long is it going to take?
2: Um, there, there's a real answer to this, and the real answer is somewhere in the neighborhood of five to ten years. Um, that's my thought too and it's there's there is you can actually map it out I have a whole thing on this this is not why people tuned in but long story short (laughs) there is there is a very traceable four four and a half generation long lifespan to conservatism and it always begins you know, anew with rebirth with a new conservative type of conservatism, and then halfway through becomes very revisionist, and then at the end of it, wildly goes off the rails. And after it's lost, it sticks around for five to 10 years in this weird post, um, very right leaning, very hateful. Um, uh, uh, period of time where they're not really in power, but we're still seeing the echoes of it. So the last time we saw this was the 1930s, yeah. where you know Republicans were voted into office in 1928. They took office in 1929. We had the they had the presidency, they had uh, the Senate and the Congress, and most of the governorships. And then by 1932, they'd so fucked up the country that the country swang way left to the point we literally had to make a constitutional amendment preventing us from reelecting the same president. And yeah. but during that period of time, you saw the rise of the American. American Nazi Party And like, even as late as 1939, you still had, you know, Madison Square Garden was full of like, not Americans in Nazi uniforms, ready to overthrow the the government. And then eventually, we finally broke that off. And Republicans rebranded themselves became pro labor, you know, um, Eisenhower was famously pro union, um, you know, something you wouldn't see a Republican do now. But then by Reagan, you know, you start to see the revisionism and going, well, what if we wound things back to how great they were before? Before, but without all the things that we did before that made it great, and then you end up where we are now. And so, I think we're looking at another five to ten years before uh, that that brand of conservatism is stamped out, and yeah. we get what will be a LGBTQ-friendly Republican Party that wants tax breaks. Sure.
1: It feels like they're in sort of the debt, the desperate last throws, mm-hmm. and that's what it feels like. They know their time is up. They know the time of like the insecure white older white man is, is up and they're just doing anything they can to cling on to any shred of power.
2: I I use my parents as a barometer because they are very much those conservatives. And uh, 25, 26 years ago now, they threatened to, you know, throw me out of the family if I was the best man in my friend's gay wedding. And I was just like, well, throw me out of the throw me out of the family. Then like, uh, you know, I I grew up in a Christ, a a Christ loving household. And Jesus said, love everyone and let God figure it out. And my best friend asked me if I would be there and stand by him at his wedding. I'm going to fucking be there my parents didn't throw me out, but they did, uh, they did wag a figure for a while. And now of course they're very, very much against that and pretending that that never happened. And of course we yeah. did never do that because people are allowed to do what they want to do. And we're seeing that mentality be scraped out of conservatism. Uh, but there's still, there's still some fucktards to be dealt with.
1: Um, well, I, thank you all for tuning in to, uh, cargill graham and billy ray do politics uh, <laughs> hope you enjoyed our little sojourn um but we are actually here to talk about a motion picture um called the black phone uh, i know uh, before we dive into our discussion uh i'm going to play a quick trailer for you all that way you can get a sense if you have no idea what we're talking about and if you don't what rock have you been living under uh but take a quick listen and we'll be right back
2: have you seen this boy? My brother, he was taken. By a man with black balloons.
1: <laughs> I had a dream
2: about
0: it. Please let the dream be real. You're getting out of here.
1: How? There's a combination lock. What's the combination? special thing mm-hmm. please hurry <laughs> the creepiest damn thing we are back the black phone you just heard the trailer uh the gentleman who wrote this screenplay is here with us today this film which is doing um I think it's safe to say is doing fantastically at the box office at the moment is that fair to say Cargill?
2: Yeah, I would say co-wrote because I did co-write it with my best friend and, sure. and uh, business partner, Scott Derrickson. But yes, I did. I I did write this. Uh, but yeah, it is doing incredibly well. We, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic. Um, we, you know, we had a tough weekend. Uh, going up against, you know, two juggernaut summer films uh, and uh, going up against a new release of, of uh, a music biopic, which, you know, uh, always do well.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and people People love seeing those. And so it was a tough weekend, but we did really well and we continue to do well based on word of mouth. And we could not be we could not be happier. We are over the moon. You know, it, whenever you go to market with a new film, you're always concerned. When you go with something new that doesn't, that doesn't have an established fan base, there's always that concern. Is anybody going to turn up? Yeah. And then people went and people seem to enjoy it. We've done really well with Rotten Tomatoes and with audience scores and at the box office. So hell yeah, yeah.
1: it's, it's rare these days when a film hits it on the Rotten Tomatoes side and the audience score side. So that's always a coup. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. I, you know, I saw this, uh, Graham, did you see this back at fantastic fest? I don't think you did. did no,
0: you? I saw this yeah. on, uh, I saw this like a couple days ago. For the first oh, wow. Time.
1: So you, it's, it's fresh. I saw it at fantastic <clears throat> fest, uh, which I think that was the very first screening ever. Was it not Cargill?
2: It was, that was yeah. our world premiere.
1: I knew, I knew as soon as I saw it at fantastic fest, I had a, I had a strong feeling it was going to do well. It just, just based on the odd. I mean, it's hard, you know, I know the audience reaction at fantastic fest is a little, bias because of the type of festival it is but the response was so it was just i just had a feeling it was going to do well uh graham it's fresh in your mind and it would be weird to have cargill do it so why don't you tell us graham what the black phone is about what is the black phone about the black phone is about a uh, small
0: community uh in in uh, suburban america where uh they are currently encountering a plague of a a gentleman known only as the grabber, who is abducting children. These children then disappear, never to be seen again. Uh presumably they are killed, and as we find out later in the film. And,
1: and spoilers for the black phone. Yes, no? Are we spoiling things? Um I mean, as long as long as we give people warning and they have the ability to skip, then that's fine. Okay.
0: Well you if you're listening to this, go see the black phone. Just go see it and then Stop come back. Stop it here. right um, now.
1: Go see the black phone, then come <laughs> back and finish listening.
0: Um, But yes, as we discover, uh, these uh, uh, children are in fact being murdered by this mysterious grabber played by Ethan Hawke in what might be my favorite role he's ever played, honestly. Um, And uh, we end up following one uh, young man who is uh, abducted like so many others by the grabber. Um, he comes from an abusive household uh, and and he and his sister have a very strong bond. Um, so strong in fact uh, that his sister um, who who appears to have some sort of psychic powers uh, is is um, able to to sort of help, uh solve the case in uh attempt to solve the case in getting him freed um and uh in the basement where the grabber keeps him he discovers a black phone that is disconnected from the wall and yet it rings and who does he talk to the grabber's past victims who share with him their hints and tricks and parts of their own stories uh to try to help him escape the grabber with his own life um is that a pretty good synopsis of what happened yeah yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good synopsis. I think. Um, you know what's funny? You know, me and Graham did a screen dra- an episode of screen drafts, a couple of years ago, a kid venture draft, which I think Graham, you would probably agree with me, is maybe is definitely one of my favorite sort of subgenres of films. One hundred percent. This film to me fits very nicely into that category. One hundred percent. And that's something that we just don't get a lot of those films anymore. Like it reminds me of the time in the eighties when they actually put kids in danger in films (laughs) and they weren't afraid to do that. And I long for that time because those are the films I grew up on. And now Hollywood is just too, I don't know, too scared, too nervous about, you know, people having a fit about it. But I'm curious, Cargill, uh, from your perspective, uh, was that, I mean, is that something that you were conscious of going into? This? I know this, and for folks who don't know, this is based on a on a on Joe Hill's uh, book, The Black Phone. Um, so uh, it is ba- that is the original source material. So when you were going into this, I'm curious, what was that the sort of like idea of kids in danger? That throwback feel to like the 70s, 80s? Was that something that was consciously in your mind when you were going at it? Oh,
2: absolutely. Uh yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that I recently was forced to, you know, kind of sit down and think about, you know, my body of work as a body of work because I've gotten to that point in my career where I started out and I was just, you know, I'd been a film critic for 10 years and oh, now I'm a novelist and I'm a screenwriter. Well, now I'm a guy who's made 5 movies. I've published 5 books, four novels and a short story collection. So I literally if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, I have what somebody would call a body of work. Yeah. And when you break that down, uh about 70 percent of my work involves children going on those kind of adventures it's something that I love as well you know we come from that generation where we came up with um watching a bunch of movies that spoke to us or you know that we could go back and you know connect with and and I want to make those and I want to keep making those um there's there's so much to be mined in there nobody else is really doing it it's um uh you know there's a couple others that that do it in fact there's so few of them like some of the reviews we've gotten have been like oh it's borrowing from stranger things and it's like you need to watch more movies before you review (laughs) um because uh that's uh (laughs) if you think stranger things involved invented this formula rather than is aping this formula yeah you're you're in the wrong century my man
1: and totally Um, it's very different than stranger things as well
2: (laughs) oh sure sure um but uh but yeah we we definitely we really enjoy playing around with that i mean one of the big things is that, you know, part of being a storyteller is you want to connect with your audience. And one thing every audience member has in common is we were all children and we all dealt with these same things. And what we were able to do with this movie was talk about our childhood in a way nobody else has talked about our chi- this generation's childhood yet. And yeah. so we talk about things that I've had. I've had audience members, you know, it, I've had people reach out to me, you know, privately or walk up to me after screenings. And they are shaken by it you know they were taken back to what it was like to get the belt from mom and dad when they got in trouble they were taken back to what it was like to have those violent fights on on school grounds where a kid would get his crack head cracked open and nobody would have anything happen about it It was just kids you know fighting you know yeah. uh, it wasn't at that big a deal um as it is today and back to a time when we were scared of serial killers coming to take us because they were yeah. and our parents were still st- sending us to school anyway and so we were able to take that whole kind of dynamic of what was great about those kids in peril movies, but then superimpose our own childhoods onto that and really mine it for something that could connect with audiences, would have this feeling of authenticity, and then simultaneously also be fun because you can you, once you get the relationship of this brother and sister, you're in and you love these kids and you want to see these kids get through this horrible thing uh and that's what people that's what you want when you go to the movie theater is to feel something as well as you know experience a story
1: yeah and so this film is set in 1978 which as you just mentioned like i feel like this was a weird time where it's that transition between the time when the parents were like we're let their kids go out and do anything like as long as you're back before the sun sets but as fun. long
2: as you're back before the streetlights come on.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this is in that weird time where, like you said, serial killers are a thing now, and like it, it's a real concern. And like now we're in that sh- they're in that shift of like, Ooh, do we le- do we let the kids go play? Do we protect the kids? And it's like that's interesting to me because I don't see that time depicted very much in films outside of documentaries.
2: Yeah, it's not. And and it was that's why it was such prime ground when when me and Scott kind of came to the conclusion of where and when to set it and how to do it. It just all fell into place because there was just all this great stuff that like just so much stuff that, you know, we wanted to put in there, but just would feel forced, you know, because we had so much stuff to play with. Uh, you know, something I, you know, we just couldn't find a place for in here was one of my favorite childhood things that so many people from my generation remember, which is your parents saying, go and choose a belt, or go yeah. out and make your own switch.
1: Yeah, my Alabama brain is tingling.
2: Yeah. It's like, oh, God, oh, God, I remember that. Because if you came back with one too small, you were going to get it even worse. So you had to pick yeah. you had to choose your own punishment, which is almost worse. Uh, but yeah, but we wanted to. We we want. There's so much. It's such fertile ground to play in, and and so we were able to pick the best stuff that really fit for for this film, and then really kind of just make it feel authentic to the time. So much so in, in ways that I didn't even expect. Like uh, Chris Gore reached out to me from Film Threat. Yeah, yeah, and he grew up um, a few blocks away from a kid that was taken at this same exact time oh, by oh wow. by a child killer who famously kept the children for weeks before killing them and so they literally you know some of the kids were kept for up to 19 days uh before they were murdered and uh um and it was never solved uh and so he grew up in this neighborhood with this famous you know this guy could still be out here um yeah
1: yeah, that's terrifying. <laughs> I mean, a lot of those guys could still be out there. There are a lot of those folks who were never caught. Yep. Um, they could all still be out there. I'm also curious. So, you know, obviously you're adapting a work here, which you've done before. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, obviously it's not as extensive as an adaptation as something like Doctor Strange, where you're having to do it based on this whole pantheon of lore. Oh, yeah. um, what is your approach when you're adapting someone else's work? Cause you're a writer yourself. So wh- how do you go into that and how beholden are you to what's in the book versus any kind of newness that you're wanting to bring as a creative?
2: Well, the thing, the thing to any adaptation is you got to get the soul, right? You have to ask yourself, what is it that audiences have connected with this already? Why did I connect with this? What is essential to this story for it to be that? Like what is essential to Dr. Strange for it to be Dr. Strange? What is essential for the black phone to be the black phone? And then after that, details are malleable and the details, uh, you change details only if there's a better way to do it or a more updated way to do it. You know, something, something doesn't ring as true anymore. Or, you know, you look at things like John Carter of Mars, which is one of the greatest science fiction works ever made so much so that it's been ripped off so much that when they tried to make it as a movie, it felt tired and old because all of the best bits have been mined by Star Wars and Star Trek and, and, and portal fantasy galore. Um, So you want to, you want to go ahead and make sure that it's adapted for, the people that are watching it and that it's going to deliver what they, what people that don't know that material will want from this material. Cause you're also making a movie for them too. You know, so we had to make a movie that if you love the black phone, you wanted to see this. So what was essential? A ghost phone and a killer having him in the basement. The fact that, you know, in the original story, it was a clown. We changed because of the times because you know, it had come out and um you know joe had felt that you know when he had written the story it was 20 years after it had come out 15 years after the tv movie was made and no one was thinking about clowns and so nobody thought a thing of it but you know coming out several years just a few years after the remake of it all of a sudden it's like oh everybody's gonna think pennywise so let's change it well how do we change it well we'll find something that's better which joe came up with um and then scott really did an amazing job on uh but uh You know, um, that's that's the key to it, is you've got to get those core elements straight and know that that the details can be changed, but only if for the better. And if you follow that formula, you can make something that the people that have read this thing and love it go, oh, wow, this is the thing. Like anyone who loves the story goes, man, that sure was Joe's story. Even Joe feels that Joe's like, my God, you guys took my story and you expanded on it. And you, you made the story that was in my head. Um, and then uh, uh, people who were unfamiliar with it were were tickled because they didn't feel they there was something there that was just for fan service.
1: Yeah. Grant, this is recently, I mean, this is most recently in your head. I mean, well, I mean it's in carl's head in general, but it's most recently in your head in terms of having seen it. So I'm curious at, at being this is your first time a couple of days ago, what were your sort of initial sort of instant takeaways?
0: Yeah, um, <clears throat> well, it's funny, you know, not having read the story and and really knowing pretty much next to nothing about it, aside from the very basic premise going into it, um, I I immediately thought of of it, and maybe this is jumping the gun a little bit. Um, but I I immediately thought of it, but I, I thought of it because um it's it's such a story about about kids having to face something extremely adult on their own. Um and and to me you know we were talking about kid venture stuff before um that that to me is so appealing because as a kid you know you you both are terrified of that eventuality happening of there's something where your parents are not going to be able to help you but you're also really excited by that you know you you go like we used to live right next door to a a patch of forest. And so my friends and I used to go into the forest and we'd go hunting for witches. And we, you know, and and like, what would happen if we actually encountered a witch? I don't know, you know, but we kind of wanted that to happen. Um, And, and, but overall, the feeling that I got from this, granted I'm a horror fan, um, but it was, it, it was the most warm blanket horror movie I've seen in a really long time. It made me as a horror fan feel really good. Um, and I don't mean that to say that it wasn't scary because that's the whole point is it was fucking terrifying and it was really emotional and it packed a huge gut punch, but there was something about the care in my mind with which the, the characters were handled and with which the victims were handled that, that really put you as part of that crew. And then when you're part of that crew and part of that team and, and they're able to ultimately overcome the bad guy, um, it just, it's, it, it just, it made me feel all warm and fuzzy. I, I, that was my main takeaway. And what was so cool was, you know, I'm sitting there in a packed theater and I'm looking around and I'm seeing like 13 and 14 year olds, you know, I, I saw a couple of probably 10 and 11 year olds that were there with their parents. And this is one of those really golden, like Goldilocks movies where you can totally see it when you're 13 but it's really going to fuck you up and you can handle it if you're 10, but it's definitely way too scary for you (laughs) at that age, you know, and that's my sweet spot of movies. You know, I, I love that stuff. Um, So that was my big takeaway was I was just thinking, man, you know, if, if, if I were a 13 year old kid sitting in this theater right now, I'd be fucking wrecked. And, and I love, I just, I love that. I love that for horror. I love that for, the genre um and and i love that for movies too because that's that's really the engine that like drives stuff like this um you know and it influences a whole new a whole new uh generation of of horror fans so that that's what i really took away from it and it made me really happy
1: yeah that's very very well said and i think you mentioned what you mentioned about the kids being in there i think is really awesome because you know i think this is actually going to be a really fascinating film to a lot of younger kids because it's dealing with a lot of things that they, that is just not in their life like you know this idea of oh you know kids going and kind of doing what they want and getting in like parents don't let their kids do that anymore like it's a very foreign concept to them and so the idea of like all these 10 13 year olds even if it's fucking them up going to watch this movie i think is amazing like we're creating a new generation of horror fans
2: I mean, that's really at its heart, something that I've been working for, you know, for quite some time when we first set out to make Sinister and we talked about what rating to, to write it. You know, I told Scott, look, I grew up as, a, you know, as a teenage horror fan. You know, I started watching horror movies when I was 10. You know, I really got into them when I was 13. Um, And that's a big reason why I'm a horror filmmaker and a horror storyteller is I love horror. So I want to make horror movies that, you know, 13-year-olds can watch. And so I was like, let's make a movie that's PG-13. So we wrote a movie without any sex with, you know, minimal blood. Uh It's uh, almost... Entirely in your head. Um, you know, no uh uh no nudity, n- you know, no swears. Uh we had uh Ethan add an F bomb to our uh our, our script in an ad lib, but we made a movie that was functionally PG 13, and then the MPAA looked at it and said, Yeah, that's a rated R movie. Um that's too scary for kids. And we were like, you know, Jason Blum pulled us aside and said, Look, we 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 get to put that on the poster, like, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a win. If they say it's too scary, you made something good. And then we made something that turned out was pretty fucking scary uh but we've still been aiming for that target like hitting that target that a 13 year old can watch our horror movies and really you know get the shit scared out of them. in fact that was one of the great we got a great review um i think it was ebert voices this weekend in which you could i knew exactly how old the critic was because they said i i saw when i first saw sinister i was a 13 year old hiding under my covers and now here they're back scaring the crap out of me again and i'm like oh it's a 23 year old film critic but that's also really rad that here's somebody who. Grew grew up with our work um, as opposed to what I'm used to, which is people growing up with me having been something else before I did this and being familiar with my previous work. And now this is what I've moved on to. And so they don't know how to classify me. Whereas here's somebody with their entire life. I've just been somebody who writes movies. Uh, So it's interesting.
1: Yeah. You know, we, we, you know, we'll get into the Ethan Hawke of it all, but you know, Mm -hmm. as great as he is in this, To me, this movie lives and dies on those kids. Like, they are so tremendously good in this. Like, I'm just amazed at how you were able to find, like, the two perfect kids for this film.
2: Well, that's Scott. Scott. Scott, I've said this in a number of interviews recently, but Scott has a superpower. And that superpower is to find kids who can really deliver. And every kid we've ever worked with has been phenomenal. Like, absolutely phenomenal. And every kid he found for this movie, every single one of them is incredible. Every last, right down to the bit parts. They're all phenomenal. They all, like, you hate the bullies with a passion. Yeah. They get, like, two oh. minutes of
0: screen time, and you want to punch each one of them in the yep. face. And, that you know, first, That first kid, that first kid that gets the shit kicked out of him, he's on screen for literally about two seconds, and already I'm, like, kick his ass. Yeah. <laughs> kick his ass right now. You're so authentic. It's such a... Like yeah. This. yeah, it's it's economy of storytelling. It's like I don't need a lot of time with this kid to know he needs to get the shit kicked out of him, and he does, <laughs> and it was great.
2: Yeah, it's uh, but every single kid just did uh, incredibly, and and Scott also has a real magic working with kids. He he has a system down, and he gets to know them and earns their trust, and then only Scott gives them any kind of direction on set. You don't have anyone else you know, telling them what to do so that they're always trusting who yeah. they're dealing with. And so that they can get into their zone and the young actor in them can come out. And then of course, you know, Mason and Maddie are just, they're superstars waiting to happen. Uh, they're both incredible kids. They're both, I mean, like seriously, they're just wonderful little humans. They it, yeah. Working with them was the first time I talked to Jess and said, You know, kids wouldn't be the worst thing that could ever happen to us. (laughs) You know, I love these kids. They're adorable. Um, And then you think about it a little more and go, ah. I don't need to have kids. Um, but uh, I could just keep making movies with kids and get to know them and then send them home with their parents. And, um, but yeah, they're so good, uh, and so talented and they were really devoted to what they were doing and they were a real treat to work with. So it's been, it's been great. And then of course I've gotten to know the kids that I worked with on Sinister and watched them grow up and into wonderful humans. Um, so it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's just something that Scott is really incredibly good at. And if you watch a lot of his movies, there's a lot of kids in his various movies and they're always good. You never go, Oh, who the hell is that kid? Like he even got, he got a great uh, performance out of Jaden Smith back in the day. um, 15 years ago, um, (laughs) which is weird to think about, but, uh, but yeah, he's uh, uh, it, it. I mean, that's really the secret. It's, it's Scott. And then he finds the right kids.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I can't imagine those kids aren't going to blow up like I was when I was watching Madeline in this film. It was like it reminded me of like seeing what's her name, Julia Butters and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where Mm -hmm. someone just is so commanding, you're like, they're going to explode. Um, and she was that good she's really is terrific
2: I've started to get calls from friends who are like so um can you put in a good word with us for Maddie because apparently her schedule's filling up and we would love her for the movie (laughs) or how is she to work with and things like that and I'm getting those calls about both her and Mason and and it's just it's it's a delight to be like oh yes book them immediately they rock yeah
1: well we have to talk about the Ethan Hawke of it all and I'm curious like did he just have so much fun being a villain in this that he was like, I'm gonna go do Moon Knight and be a villain there too?
2: No, it was, I mean, he he went, he went to Moon Knight immediately after shooting. Uh, he, you know, okay. we were limited on days we had because he'd already booked it, but he had decided to book it because he had already decided to do this. And he okay. was like, and also as he will tell you, um, uh, he doesn't count his character in Moon Knight as a villain because that character believes he's right. Like he's he's he doesn't believe that he's evil or what he's or know what he's doing is wrong. He thinks he's the good yeah. guy. So uh he he doesn't quite count that, but he's not against doing villains again. Uh but he did have a blast doing this. Um he put on that mask the first time and just said, Oh, I remember this. This is like doing Greek theater in college. And uh and he was just phenomenal. And he's just, I mean, me and Scott call him two take hawk, uh, cause his first take is his warm-up take. And then you get the take you're going to use the second time and everything after that is for safety. Uh, He is just, he always comes prepared. He knows his lines uh, backwards and forwards. He has three different ways he's ready to do it. Uh, He's a blue collar actor and, 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 we'll keep working with him until all of us are in the ground. Like there'll be one of us left and that will be it. That'll be the end of the relationship. I want to keep making movies with that guy. He's just a wonderful creative partner and he trusted us. And, you know, he, he had a great experience on Sinister and told us then if you ever have anything for me again, I absolutely want to work with you guys again. we came to him with this. And he was like, look, I've never played a villain before. I probably won't do this, but because it's you guys, I'll read the script. And then he read the script and there was a line I had written to describe him, uh, to describe the grabber's voice, which, you know, uh, Ethan then called, uh, essentially it said, uh, you know, he's got a gravelly voice that sounds like he's, uh, uh, like every word means I'm going to kill the, I'm about to kill the fuck out of you. And um, then uh, Ethan called up Scott and said, I'm gonna kill the fuck out of you. Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's and amazing. so that was that's how Scott and Scott still has it on his phone, and he'll play it for you if you ask. So next time you run into him, <laughs> ask him to play the Ethan Hawk grabber uh, uh, audition, if you will. <laughs> but yeah, he's yeah he he had a blast, and he was great, and he was awesome with Mason, and it was just a it was a wonderful time.
1: Well, it's funny you mentioned Greek theater because there is something very sort of almost lyrical about his movements in the film and so Mm -hmm. that really tracks and that sort of greek theater comparison you can see it in the way he's moving and the way he's performing it's almost it's very animalistic and almost like reptilian in a way
2: that's what he was going for like that was the thing is he knew because he couldn't emote he could use his eyes he could use his voice and he could use his body so he used all three with laser precision and just creates this character that just gets under your skin
1: I feel like we're living, we've been living in the last few years in what is the hawk in mm-hmm. terms of like people not rediscovering, but like finally coming around and being like, oh yeah, he's one of the best actors working today.
2: It's it's a little of both. The thing is, is that uh, I think the only thing that ever held back Ethan in his career was Ethan, because there's things he had decided not to do. And up until Sinister, he had never made a, uh, never made a horror film. Um, and was famously, he felt that that's what you did when your career was over, um, you know, uh, and uh, he up until now didn't play villains. But what you can watch over the last 10 years after he did Sinister, and he talked to us about this, it loosened him up in a way where he was like, well, what are the other things I'm not doing? And so he's been taking wild swings yeah. and great swings like Good yeah. Lord Bird. That is yeah. an incredible performance. For my money, that's that's Ethan's best performance ever. I love him in that show. Um, I'm jealous I did not work on that show because it's so fucking good uh but he is he has been doing all these great things and he's been experimenting with genre films and playing around in a way that he hadn't before and yeah and as a result we're seeing i mean he's got three big projects this year um you know including ours and it's like this is this is great you see stuff like first reformed that he did that like that's something he would not have done 10 years ago um and northman (laughs) <laughs> oh oh absolutely northman yeah. oh and he's he's so good at northman yeah you know and so all of a sudden you're seeing you know this actor who's always had this but now he's doing all the various things and showing his range and everybody's going holy shit he can be a viking he can be a viking king a serial killer and a marvel villain all in the same summer holy shit well all right yeah uh, what can he do and the answer is nothing there's nothing
1: ethan can't do I I recently or not recently back in 2019. I mean, I've always been a big Ethan Hawke fan, but I got to see him in True West on Broadway. Mm. Him and Paul Dano, and I got I I developed such a newfound respect for him after seeing that because I and I'd seen I saw the production that Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley did years before as well, and just the choices that he was making in that show were so outside the box and, and never anything I would have associated with that show or those characters, but they worked so well. It was just like thinking about the way his brain was working was mind boggling to me.
2: Oh yeah. No, he he's, he's great that way. Like he's, he's just, he's always making very interesting choices and it's always a trip to watch him work. Um, you know, there've been a few times over the course of making two movies with him and developing some stuff with him that I've seen him kind of get stuck for a moment and be like, Something's wrong here. And then watching how his brain works to figure out what's wrong with the scene to get that scene to work. And it's always something simple. Um, You know, I remember there's a scene where, you know, um, uh, in Sinister where he was uh, just outside, there was a dog, there were ghosts, ghost kids, you know, he's freaking out, he's coming in, he's having an emotional breakdown. And he's trying to, he's come inside and talking to his wife and he's like, something's wrong here. And he realizes, you know what? I've just been outside. I've just fallen on the ground. Let me put some dirt on my hands. And then I'm going to be washing my hands off while we're having this argument and having Mm -hmm. this breakdown. And then once he starts doing that, the whole scene comes alive and it's just, it's no longer a dialogue scene. He's had the smallest bit of business. It's a guy washing his hands, but in doing so it really ties in for the last scene and makes it feel you know authentic and it was all just from this interesting choice he made and he just he literally put his hands in the dirt and rubbed them up in dirt so that he could properly scrub and make it look legit on camera and he did that for a couple of takes while he did it and every time he nailed it after that and and watching his brain work and the choices he makes is is such a delight
1: yeah yeah he's he's exceptional in this i mean and i'm not going to go too deep into i i've always had a a my motto has always been any movie that has James Ransone in it is <laughs> automatically a three-star movie, regardless of anything else. You're going to get at least three stars if he's in it. That's my feeling on him. I adore him as an actor.
2: Well, good, because he's been in four of the things that I've made.
1: Yeah, he's amazing. So the way that we, we do a thing on here, the way that we rate films on here, we don't do thumbs or stars. We do what I call the Waffle House rating system okay so a film is either smothered which means not really worth your time smothered and covered which means it's watchable it's okay or smothered covered and chunked which means it's highly recommended and all the waffle house (laughs) folks out there will know exactly what that means um graham would you say this is smothered smothered and covered or smothered covered and chunked oh this is the chunkiest are you kidding me agreed are you are you calling my movie all the way I'm, yeah, it's all it's all the
0: way. You're all you're right. you're the you're the four a.m. Uh, final straggler, uh, uh, the final waffles off the griddle before they change the griddle oil, um, which is a, the highest of compliments when you're talking about Waffle House. Um, yeah, it's it's really you know, it, the best horror movies make you care about what's happening to the people. Um, and this is one of those horror movies. Uh, I, I, walked out of it, uh, just thinking, wow, I was really along for that ride. I really cared what was happening. Uh, and not just cause I'm friends with you, uh, but because it was just a really well-made fucking movie. Um, so I would consider this smothered, covered, and chunked, um, the chunkiest. In fact, uh, I'm even going to smuggle in some boysenberry syrup from IHOP to add to that, uh, because I enjoyed it so much.
1: Uh, we're going to pile some Burt's chili on it for sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's for sure. Okay. Yeah, this, this whole episode is just us telling Cargill how amazing we think his movie. Is. Well, th- <laughs> I,
2: I appreciate that. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. Um, Black Phone is in theaters right now and doing well. So you should go out and check it out. Obviously, you know, if you're still a little COVID scared you it'll be on vod at some point in the future you can wait to see it there but
2: it's also playing at a number of drive-ins around the country even here in austin at blue starlight
1: yeah and so you know i recommend theatrical if you're comfortable with it it's a great film to see on the big screen but if not you know it is going to be great however you check it out so um go do that we're going to be right back after a quick break Uh, We are going to talk about the Chattanooga Film Festival, and then we're also going to curate a little movie mixtape about the films that we think might have inspired the film and have Cargill tell us if we are full of shit. So stick around. We will be right back. We are back, and we're about to get into our movie mixtape portion of the show. But first, Graham, you have a new podcast that is pretty awesome. Why don't you tell us about it? I sure do, Billy Ray. Thank you. It's called Night
0: School. Uh, It is available wherever you find podcasts. It comes out every other Friday. Um, And uh, yeah, the idea is I talk about horror movies with experts in various fields of academia. So science, history. um, I've had some religious scholars. Um uh we, we've had a lot of really interesting guests, and really the goal is to um try to get an academic perspective on some of the aspects of horror movies that we love and sort of see what they get right and what they get wrong. Um and more often than not, we tend to find that uh that that there's a lot more truth uh in in uh in the fiction than we might think. Um, like for instance, we had an astrophysicist um and the the uh, uh science advisor on Battlestar Galactica talk to us about the alien franchise. Um I just spoke to a colonial American historian about the witch today. Um, so uh, re- really interesting stuff. I had a uh, a reverend and theological scholar talk to me about martyrs, uh, which is a really fascinating discussion about uh, theological philosophy and stuff. So it's really nerdy. Um, we talk about horror movies. Uh, all the guests are really interesting and and I try to keep stuff uh, pretty varied. um yeah, so i'm I'm really enjoying doing it. And like I said, it's called Night School with Graham Skipper and it's out every other Friday wherever you
1: listen to podcasts are are Cargill and I considered academic enough to ever be on the show is the question like i I've seen Congo a thousand times. Does that qualify me to talk about it? I, I mean I, you know
2: I, i'm halfway well, to an I, associates in uh uh in community college uh that i dropped okay out see there you, yes, there you go
0: there
1: you go i'm sure we'll i'm sure we'll find something i'm sure we'll find something yes. but yeah it's awesome you should definitely go check it out it's a really cool podcast and uh Thank there's you. nothing quite like it which is what i want in a podcast um carl do you have anything that you have to promote books or anything of that nature
2: I mean, not specifically. I mean, I am an author. Uh, If you if you're listening to this and you're like, I love the black phone, you might love my latest novel, Day Zero, uh, which is about. a. It's uh,
0: fucking great.
2: It's it's about a robot uh, nanny on the last day before the robot revolution who has to decide whether to join the revolution and fight for his own freedom or protect the boy that he is programmed to love um uh, it's another one of those children's stories uh i also have a fantasy series called the uh, uh, dreams and shadows with the two books dreams and shadows and queen of the dark things which is about a young boy who makes a wish that ends up impacting his life uh, for the worse, uh, overall, uh, but sends him on wild fantasy adventures with awful, awful, horrible things. So, uh, those are that. And if you listen to podcasts, which clearly you do, I have a podcast called junk food cinema, uh, where me and my buddy Brian Salisbury, uh, talk about what we think are generally underrated films or dig into what is considered junk food and, and treat it with the respect we think it deserves.
1: Yeah, Brian, who has also been on this show. We love Brian. Um, yeah, check all that stuff out. I mean, I'm sure you've never thought of this, Cargo, but some of your books sound like they'd make good movies.
2: Oh no, I've never thought of that. That's <laughs> that is a that is a thought that has never crossed my mind and certainly my pocketbook.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, let's go ahead and get into the mixtape portion of this. This is kind of our curation of so let's say that you're you're sitting home you're bored and you're like you know I really want that black phone vibe and I've got 12 to 16 hours to kill for a movie marathon these are the movies that we're gonna recommend to you graham and I each have three films that we think could have, should have, or did inspire the black phone. We're probably very wrong on all of them, but that's what's great about this. Uh Graham, you're my guest, so I'm gonna give you the option would you like to go first? or would you like to go second?
0: Well, I like hearing myself speak, so I'll go first. Go right ahead. Um, So the first movie in my mixtape, I mentioned in my tweet about this movie, um, but that first film, and also a film that I tried to play on the Kid Venture draft for screen drafts, but it got Vita, or uh, Commissioner Overridden, is one of my favorite movies of all time, The Sandlot. Wow. Um, From from the get-go, because... The thing about the Black Phone is that this is not all pure horror. The, there's a good, you know, serious chunk of the beginning that's all living with these kids and dealing with their personal lives. And their personal situations—that's what makes us care about them so much. Um, they deal with bullies, uh, they deal with with uh, a, a abusive households, uh, they deal with parents that don't understand them, um, and they deal with things that to them are extremely important. But maybe as an adult, we might say, "Ah, you know, don't worry about it, whatever." Um, and to me, that's what the sandlot's kind of all about. It's about kids having to come together and deal with something that the parents uh, are are either oblivious to or don't care about um and so yeah that that's why it just that that whole first section um where where we're just experiencing uh them them living before the grabber gets him uh is uh it, it just kept screaming the sandlot to me so that's that's my first pick for the mixtape movie
1: that's an interesting choice i certainly i mean i love the sandlot obviously um but i never i never thought of it, it makes total sense cargo what do you think about the sandlot as an as a possible inspiration?
2: Uh, no, no, it is not. Uh, <laughs> it is it is one that if you were programming films that tied in, that would totally work. You are killing me, Smalls. But uh, uh, but no, it's it's one of those movies that came too late for me and Scott you know uh Scott's older than I am and it, it came just you know I I didn't watch it till later in life because when it came out it was just this kids movie about kids playing baseball and it was not it had not gained that mainstream notoriety um you know it kind of fell in with those um big little league and um, rookie of the year, you know, it was that nineties era. Oh, kids playing sports, you know? um, And then we moved into dogs playing sports and uh, you know, it was that kind of era. And so it just kind of fell in with those. And then after, you know, I noticed that there were so many younger film fans who were quoting this movie and making references to it that I was like, this is no throwaway film. I need to watch it. And then I was like, Oh, this is a great movie, but no, I would not call that one of the principal influences.
1: Yeah. Graham, you failed.
2: No, <laughs> I'm right off the bat. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm
1: going fail- to be failing a lot too. I base my pick sort of off the energy and sort of the vibes that I'm getting at certain parts of the movie. I'm generally jotting down names of films. And so my first film is a film, I, I guess I'm I'm putting it on here because, I mean, it certainly deals with a kidnapping. And I I think there's some similarities in the way the film uses the killer in interesting ways, and so my film is uh, from 1988. Uh, if you are Dutch, it is Spurloos. If you are not, it is called The Vanishing by George mm-hmm. Slizer, and this was remade in the in the 90s with Jeff Bridges and Kiefer Sutherland, and um, it's about a young couple who are on a drive. They stop at a uh, petrol station. And, um, they're apart for just a brief time, and uh, the woman goes missing. And so the rest of the film is sort of a a crosscut between her husband sort of trying to fi- becoming obsessed with trying to figure out what happened to her, and the killer who uh, is maybe the most interesting, complex, and bizarre killer I've ever seen in sort of a serial killer type film. And um, you know, is a normal person except when he is a sociopath and i love the way it sort of bounces back and similarly in the way that the black phone bounces back between you know him stuck with the killer and then the sister and um and then the ending of the vanishing is just horrifying and traumatic because then the husband is sort of faced with like the ultimate sophie's choice of does he really want to know what actually happened to uh his young wife and um yeah this it was just one that energy wise sort of flowed with me in that i don't expect it to be right but it's on my list
2: and it is incorrect but <laughs> <laughs> it is a great film and uh i do think uh, uh that is a that is another interesting choice that would definitely pair well with this but not
0: an inspiration
1: not an inspiration graham we're we're we're, we're losing real bad we're not doing well so far Oh, well,
0: you know, I got to say that I I was definitely leaning more towards uh, sort of like you said, movies that feel like they have shared DNA or that have the soul of this. Um, And so my second film was a little bit older. um, And it's a film that as a child absolutely terrified me. um, And I don't know the uh, year that it came out or I would say it, um, but that would be Disney's Something Wicked This Way Comes.
1: Oh, that's 1983.
0: 83 thank you yes i um there's something dreamlike about once we're in the grabber's basement there's something otherworldly about that time in there there's something otherworldly about when the grabber takes them when he has a bunch of black balloons when he's speaking in that strange squeaky voice um there's also these elements of of the big top of, uh, you know, it's interesting that you say that uh, in the original story is a clown, um, because you definitely get a sense of that there's kind of that malevolent circus quality um, to him as a magician, as a performer. His face is painted white um, when he's outside. Uh, And so that just gave me a lot of something Wicked This Way Comes vibes. Um, That's a movie that to me, again, is kind of, you know, lives in this kinder trauma place Um, It's one of those movies that is certainly watchable if you're a a kid, uh, but at a certain point, it's definitely too scary for you, and it leaves a lasting impact. Um, Based on, of course, the incredible Ray Bradbury story, Um, yeah, it's one of my all-time favorites, and, and so I was definitely getting Something Wicked This Way Comes vibes.
1: And I'll also add, there's some similarities too in like the mannerisms of Ethan Hawke in Black Phone and Jonathan Price in Something Wicked. There mm, are some yeah. some overlap there in the way that they're portraying those characters. I love that film. It's one of my favorite films of all time too. I just did a I just did a, a list of a horror list of my favorite. 25 horror films and it was on there i got shit for it because like, it's not a horror film i'm like that movie's scary as shit if you're a kid like it's got some Wait, who, really scary stuff it's
2: who the fuck says it's not a horror film like it is yeah, absolutely a fucking absolutely jesus christ yeah that's that that is just insanity to say oh it's not a horror film Quick sidebar I fucking hate people That try to parse out The difference between Horror and thrillers
0: Yes Thank you It's it's like
2: Because we had that. There's a lot of discussion Around that on On uh, this film Because like Is it a horror film Or is it a thriller It's like A thriller is just A horror film Told from the point of view Of an investigator Like that's all they are You know You break down Your favorite thrillers and they're horror films if you watch the people who have been taken and not the police officers. That's the only difference. Uh it's just the your level of safety from the the from the terror. Um uh, in general and you know and and there's nothing wrong with a thriller and there's nothing you know and, but people yeah. like to get have been liking to ghettoize horror for so long they feel well this is sophisticated this isn't what I this isn't saw so clearly this must be a thriller because I enjoyed it and it's respectable and it's getting critical acclaim so it can't be a horror movie and it's like no fuck you we can do all of that yeah. um but i i do need to point out that graham is absolutely correct
1: uh, oh that, yes yes uh, what a
2: point there um that is in my dna and scott's as well uh we've talked about that film in the past we have expressed an interest that we would love to remake that like if disney came to us and said scott oh. derrickson c robert cargill remake something wicked we would be like fuck
1: yes please make Um, that happen universe i've been wanting that for ages
2: but i would the stipulation would be but you have to put out the original on blu-ray because we need that in our lives Um, yep
1: yep i I think you'll be i think there'll be a fight for that because i know ryan Spindell is desperate for a something that could this way comes remake as well
2: well if he wants to do it he can do it but I just want it in this world so but yeah. we've talked about it it's definitely an inspiration um you know how how that movie so expertly relates to adults in that movie but definitely is from the point of view of the kids um you know Jason Robards is so great in that movie Jonathan Price like everything about that movie is what you want from a a, a childhood horror film because a great horror film can transcend and you can enjoy it as a child you can enjoy it as adult and something wicked at that
1: yeah well that's a good i think segue into my next pick which falls in that same vein i think i put this on here this is probably an obvious pick to some people but because it does i think it's got the things i love it's got kids in danger it's got um it's got that nice balance between tones and I mean, it's iconic for a lot of reasons. It's poltergeist. Um, Poltergeist popped into my mind several times. And I think a lot of the reason that it popped, not that this, I mean, they're both, obviously they have this super supernatural element to it. And there's also this sort of play on like, you know, communicating with the spirit world in a certain way. And, um, you know, poltergeist one of my top five horror films of all time i grew up with it i still watch it regularly i think it still holds up remarkably well as a horror film and it's also i got such you said earlier like it's You said earlier it's like a warm blanket graham i feel that way about poltergeist like you you walk out it's a horror film but it's also really funny it's also got some drama to it like it's got all of the things sort of working in tandem together in that film which is you know equal parts you know toby hooper equal parts steven we're not equal parts but some steven spielberg in there i get really pissed off when people try to say that steven spielberg directed poltergeist no he did yeah, not no, fuck that um no he did not he might have some influence in it but that is a if you know toby he hooper produced the movie toby, that is a toby hooper film he
0: was a um, producer toby hooper yeah. was
1: the director come on yeah yeah and so yeah it just a lot of the same feelings with both of those films and so i had to put poltergeist on uh kind of uh
2: okay, i'll kind of i'll give you kind of because it was not a direct influence but poltergeist is in my veins you know it's yeah. in my dna it's it's one of those very affecting horror films from my youth um, uh, but, uh, I would also, I would point out that one of the reasons it wasn't our direct influences is poltergeist focuses on a very happy family sure. and the, the family here has its like problems, but not, it's not a damaged family. It's not a broken family. And it's really mostly told from the parents' point of view rather than the kids. Sure. And so most of our touchstones are going to be told from a child's point of view, because that's ex- exactly the type of film we wanted to make, but I mean, it's it's impossible for people of our age to make horror without poltergeist being part of our outlook on it.
1: I, I wrote an article years ago about how the Freelings are the worst parents in the history of horror. Um, which I will stand by to this day. Like when I was a kid, I would watch it be like, oh, those are such cool parents. They're smoking pot. They're doing all this. And now I'm like, you are horrible parents. Like you are putting your kids in danger through three different films. You're
2: you're taking your daughter and letting ghosts push her across the kitchen floor. Like, what are you thinking?
1: My God, yes. And then not even mention part two, but then in three, we're going to dump our daughter off in this high rise and horrible parents, horrible parents. But you're right, yeah, there is a difference there in in both being the kid's perspective and the adult's present. I'll take sort of, though. Sort of is a a win for me. Uh, Graham, are you going to knock it out of the park again with your third and final entry? Well, I sure hope so. I'm going to
0: cheat a little bit here uh, because, okay, so spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. I cannot stress enough spoiler. Um, The scariest moment in this movie to me Is when he decides he's going to, despite warnings on the black phone, walk up the stairs and when the stairs have been left open. And what he sees is he sees the grabber with that horrifying frown mask asleep with the belt in his hand. Yeah, it's one of the scariest, truly most horrifying images I've seen in a really long time in a horror film and without getting too much into things like family histories and whatever, um, there's a lot there, right? And so to me, the the piece of cinema that sticks out the most to me is not a whole film, but actually a part of an anthology. Um, and that would be, that would be Boys Do Get Bruises, starring David Alan Greer from Tales from the Hood. Oh. Um this is the segment of tales from the hood where david Alan greer uh plays he's a boyfriend of this but essentially he's an abusive father um and the little boy that he's abusing uh draws him as a monster and is able to then crush him uh using the power of his imagination um that to me feels so in sync with what this movie is doing about the power of children, the power of their imagination. I think there's some discussion to be had in this film of of, you know, are the ghosts of these kids actually talking to him or is he really figuring all this out on his own? Um, you know, he's a young, resourceful kid, um, you know, and, and it doesn't really matter, you know, and it, regardless, it's kids coming together that are using their ingenuity, that are using their smarts, that are using these elements that adults don't think they possess to overcome a monster um and uh and, and so that's that's why boys do get bruises uh, just kept uh ringing out to me. It's one of my favorite anthology sequences of all time in a horror film, um, and I think it's a really beautiful sequence. I think it's a, a shining point in David Allen Greer's career um certainly, and uh it I, I feel like it shares DNA with this film It does not
1: oh (laughs) but that was a compelling case though Graham. it
2: was uh, the thing is i've not seen it um what uh, whoa i've I've not seen tales from the hood um wow yeah i I now while you were doing that i was like oh shit i've not seen that i need to put that on my list i have not seen that
0: you should see it you'd like it a lot
1: yeah that's the that's my favorite sequence in that film i mean i like the um, oh what's her name why can i never think of her name um Oh God, uh, uh, Radon Chong. Like I like the Radon Chong segment as well.
0: You're thinking of Tales from the Dark Side. You're right,
1: I was going to say, right. wait, right. she's in, right. in
0: Tales from the Dark Side
2: never and mind. Tales No, the Hood?
1: Yeah. No, That is definitely then my favorite sequence of Tales from the Hood. David Unger is so good in that sequence. He's so good. Um, wow, okay, well, okay. Well, my I know my next pick is not going to be one because I think it's, <laughs> it's obviously, I think, too recent. But, I mean, there are so many, you know, this is a film i know a lot of people a lot of people love a lot of people don't love i have this film has grown on me in a big way it is from 2018 it is summer of 84 oh and, yeah um yeah this is a film about a group of kids in cape may oregon who uh there is a serial or there is a killer who is abducting kids in their community and they sort of start suspecting that a police officer who lives next door to one of them is the killer and they sort of then start investigating and trying to figure it out for themselves to see if he really is the killer and the one abducting these kids and um i really love this film and I, i it just hit me in the right way um this is the team that did uh turbo kid a few years before and um There's just something, this is definitely one of those like throwbacks to the 80s and like kids in danger because especially at the end, spoiler alert, there is an extremely graphic depiction of violence towards a kid at the end that that I know some people don't like because they feel like it comes out of nowhere. I didn't feel that. I felt like it was, um, I thought it was just a good reminder of like the danger that these kids are actually in. And um, it's a great mix of like adventure and horror And there's some humor in there and some drama. And the kids are, I think, spectacular in it. I think they did an amazing job of casting those kids. And um, I think this just makes, it would be a perfect companion piece to the Black Phone. Like if you're wanting a double feature with like a lot of the same sort of ideas going on, maybe not even ideas, but just sort of the same vibes, I think this would make a good double feature with that. And uh, yeah, I just love it. And I wish more people would check it out.
2: Uh, I do need to say that Billy Ray is wrong um and when i say you're wrong it's when you say that uh uh it was too recent to be an influence because it was a huge influence on this movie oh Oh, yes
0: uh
2: it was it was at the very me and scott were at um uh sin apocalypse in chicago we were jury members together uh and that film came across that was one of the films we needed to watch and uh we, uh, uh, gave it a best writing prize. Uh, absolutely love that film. Uh, love it, love it, love it. And, uh, 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 that, that it was when we were at that festival that we decided to do this movie and it was, we had, you know, it was, Scott had this big idea, you know, something he wanted to do. And in that conversation, we put it together with uh, uh, with the black phone and said, oh, we could do it kind of like summer of 84, setting it in you know the 70s in North Denver, which is Scott's childhood and get that all in. And that, you know, it was definitely baked into the concept that we were doing. It was definitely an influence seeing it done right. It's a wonderful film. If you've not seen it, you owe it, owe it to yourself. RKSS is fantastic. I adore them. Uh, and uh, yeah, that film was definitely an influence on this movie.
1: Well, that's lovely to hear uh, because, yeah, I love this film and I love Black Phone. And, you know, a shout out to Rich Sommer in this film, who plays the killer in Summer 84, who is so mm-hmm. good. Most people only know he him from like comedic stuff, but he is so chilling in this, especially at the end when shit was really bad. And I love th- the ending of this film. What he- I won't spoil it, but what his character does at the end of this film to the kid who's left, like the horror that he instills in him for the rest of his life is one of the most incredible endings to a horror film I've seen. It's just chilling. It's so good.
2: So can I give you guys my three movie mixtape of things that were (laughs) directed? Yes, I would hope
1: so, yes.
2: All right, let's kick it off with a movie that inspired the whole movie. Uh, A movie you would not guess unless you heard an interview with me or Scott, but Truffaut's 400 Blows. Um, oh interesting. This is classic cinema. This is the one of the this is the arguably the biggest and best film of the French New Wave. Uh, you know, I, some might argue breathless they'd be wrong. Um but uh uh but yeah, this is Truffaut's 400 blows is a movie about this little french boy and his shitty shitty life but how his joy and resilience gets him through that life and that was the core of what scott wanted to do he wanted to tell a story of his childhood and the resiliency of youth and how fucked up his youth was and so many of the things in the first act come straight out of scott's actual memory you know things that actually happened to him or things he witnessed Uh, And we wove that into a narrative, a la, you know, 400 Blows, with that concept of that character being Finney, being this kid whose strength of will and whose resilience and whose love for his sister helps get him through this, what is a terrible life, you know, it is a shitty way to grow up. And, uh, and so he got through that. And so that would definitely be one of them. And we can't talk about this without talking about Stand By Me.
1: Yep. Um, yep.
2: you yep. know Stephen King stand by me and the biggest you know it's it's in the news so I can actually say Scott wasn't supposed to say it but then you know Stephen gave us the heads up the thumbs up on that but when he watched it um he referred he talked to Joe and he said it's stand by me in hell and oh, uh that was great. you know oh. hearing Stephen King say that and what uh, a
0: thing to say oh my yeah, god I Cargill
2: what know. a fucking thing wow yeah you 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 pfft. You, you, who who needs rotten tomatoes when stephen yeah. king loves your horror <laughs> yeah. movie that's all that's um, all you need
1: put that quote on the poster along with with graham saying it's a warm blanket
2: yeah there uh, we but, go. but so stand by me is definitely you know the outlook of the kids and how ki- the kids spoke and, and that kind of stuff yeah. all fits in and then dealing with the grabber uh halloween You know, just the way, you know, this mythic kind of thing, the whole concept, like, and the concept of it, like not just Halloween itself, but what it was supposed to be the babysitter killers, you know, this local killer who committed this thing that interestingly in the 2018 Halloween, uh, which, you know, was part of why I was drawn to you know, drawn and drew that inspiration was that whole kind of concept of, um, you know so somebody has a throwaway line in there where they're like wait the babysitter killers they killed that dude killed like three people like why why are we talking about that now and it's you know and it's like oh shit you know yeah 40 years ago three people died because some dude lost his mind like that's not a story when 25 people are being gunned down in a walmart you know that's yeah. you know the it's it's uh, it, it hardly registers, but wanted to kind of get in that headspace of what the 70s were, where that was something that was this epic mythic kind of thing. And so approaching it in the way the Carpenter approached that in Halloween was a big influence for us.
1: Yeah, well, those all make perfect sense. I'm very, it makes perfect sense. 400 Blows is a delight to see on here. I would encourage folks, if they have not seen 400 Blows, to not only check out that, check out the entire Antoine dronel like, you know, there are four features and a short they're all worth a watch yeah um and that's just such a that's such a masterpiece uh it's so amazing um wow that's so this is our this is our movie mixtape for the people who have a whole day or so to, to <laughs> devote obviously you're going to kick off with the black phone but then you have to watch the sandlot the vanishing something wicked this way comes poltergeist tales from the hood summer of 84 the 400 blows stand by me and halloween that's a lineup.
2: That is a that is a fucking lineup. Like, that's a hell of a day,
1: right there. That's that's a hell of a day. Is is right? <laughs> um, I'm glad. Me, you got one right, Graham. Each. Yeah, so I feel good something. about that. That's so, I, well, actually, I got one and a sort of, so maybe I won. No. You got one and a half. I got one and a half. I'll take one and a half. <laughs> okay, that's fair, that's fair. good enough for me. You know, it's my podcast. I should win um
0: that's how this works
1: yeah that's yeah that's how this works um well that was super fun um and it's it's great it's always great knowing like what goes you know what's inspiring folks to create what they're creating or at least it is for me like i'm i mean that's part of what this show is all about is people is films and their influences so that's always a blast um well you know what before we go i want to quickly talk about chattanooga film festival i know carwell you didn't get to really see anything this year but i know i believe you probably attended in the past. Oh, many times. I <laughs> I've seen you there. We've been there together. So yeah,
2: Chattanooga is a lot of fun. I love it. Yeah, you 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 got me to black out on stage. Uh, I
1: sure did. <laughs> I just remember that read. So for those who rev it was a script called Wild Read. I just remember the end of that read and you're just sitting in that chair and you can't move. Was, it was yeah, glorious. I all- I
2: I I drank myself into a stupor on accident, which I was I'm I'm a very I'm a very careful controlled. Drinker. Like, I know what my limit is. I know what pace I can do to get to the point, you know. And at some point, I'm like, yeah, I don't need to be good anymore. I can get sloppy and get sloppy. But someone was. They were tossing around beers and like, here's a beer. Here's a beer. Hey, Cargo, you want a beer? I'm like, I can have a beer. And I, you know, had a beer and was sipping it and slammed it on stage. And, uh, you know, for comedic effect, called for another beer and slammed it on stage. And nobody told me they were 12% beers. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so I was now miscounting because a 12% beer, for those who don't know, is roughly about three times a normal beer. So what I thought was two beers was closer to five or six. And so I just turned into word salad which the audience found hilarious and my wife yep. started thinking i was going to die in public <laughs> um, and then i completed the script read and don't remember any of it
1: well that that would be the best one ever but i will tell you we did a virtual raid and i'm not going to say who the the actor is uh but i don't want to embarrass him but um we did a raid and i don't even remember what the read was i just remember larry Blamir was part of it but um he got so drunk he fell out of his chair and then spent five minutes with us watching in horrors he was like feeling around trying to find his way back up oh no and it was oh, like wow, wow. It, it, was, it was glorious it was wonderful but we literally when it was over i i had to like call and check on it to make sure he was okay because i felt bad
2: the last the last scripts gone wild i did was we did the thing and uh my power went out in the house uh so i dropped out but it dropped out literally my power went out 10 seconds after my character died and so my phone starts blowing up like did you just nope out of the thing when you died you- <laughs> yeah. people are like wait can-, can we leave did you just leave
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: yeah those are great and for folks who like scripts though, well we're going to be starting up our live show again in august so check that out uh in la at El Cid. um so yeah cff uh, it just wrapped up uh you know, CFF, for folks know, it's in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's been around for about a decade now, if not a little bit more. Uh, they've really focused more on genre films the last few years than they are anything else. Um, I specifically wanted to shout out because our buddy Graham Skipper had two films in the festival this year and also did a really awesome uh, Godzilla chat for folks at the festival. Uh, he's a big Godzilla fan. I think that's an understatement. Um, I saw The Leech, uh, which I believe that was the world premiere it
0: was the world premiere that's correct yeah
1: uh eric Pennykoff, uh graham is in that alongside jeremy gardner um i i adored it i thought like i I told graham earlier i think it's his best performance that i've seen so far um i it's just i think it's eric's best film um i i really really dug it graham the leeched can you tell us anything about it
0: Yeah. I mean, thank you so much. I'm, I'm super proud of this movie. Uh, you know, Eric reached out to me about it and said, basically, Hey, I've, I've got these two roles. Uh, one I think is for you and one is for Jeremy. Um, and I've acted with Jeremy in a couple of films, but we've never really gotten to like go head to head. Um, And and I read the script and immediately it was I was just totally in love with it. Um, It's a role that I really haven't gotten to play before. I I play Father David, who's an extremely repressed priest um, who is uh, uh, sort of faced with a a a waning church population. He can't seem to get anybody in the pews. And he uh, at the beginning of the film meets Terry who's a homeless man, uh, who just needs a place to stay. And, uh, David inviting him into his home in the week before Christmas, yes, it's a Christmas movie. Um, uh, David inviting him into his home, uh, very quickly spirals out of control. Um, and, uh, really horrible things happen. Uh, it's, it's a really great film, you know, and, uh, I mean, this is, you know, it's an independent film. Uh, you know, Eric, I know really, um, you know, had to had to pull together a lot to make it happen. Uh, but I mean, we filmed this thing at the height of the pandemic. I mean, this was before vaccines. You know, and Eric's calling us up saying, "Hey, do you all want to come fly to Indiana?" You know, I, I certainly hadn't been on a plane, Um, you know, and we were following all the safety protocols, you know, and getting tested, you know, every three days and all the stuff that that was mandated. Um, But what was really cool was we were all shooting in the same house where we were living. So like it, when you see the film, you know, the film that the room that I sleep in uh, is where I was sleeping as a human being. Uh Same with Jeremy um and and his wife taylor and, and everybody so we all ended up forming our own little bubble so after you know the first like five six days of filming we all knew that we were good to go and and we were we were all in this bubble together and it was really nice uh in in the thick of the pandemic to be able to be around other people we could have movie nights and we could you know be talking to others that weren't our immediate family members um it was a really special film and uh uh it's one of the things that i love about it is that you never really know who's the bad guy, who's the good guy and who am i rooting for. um yeah. that that's very malleable and it changes a lot and it goes to a truly bonkers wild place at the end. um which is something that i always look for in a film. So yeah, um Arrow is putting it out this Christmas um and i i'm sure that it's going to play a few other festivals uh, uh, between, between the and now, um, but be on the lookout for it. Yeah. The leech I'm, I'm very proud of.
1: Yeah, that's, it's awesome. It really is. And when you say the ending is bonkers, that's an understatement. Um, I, I would love to see it at fantastic fest.
0: I sure would too.
1: <laughs> I would too. I mean- I think that would be a blast, but you also had another film there too, which I did not get to see. Um, I was going to try to fit in a day, was not able to yet, but I want to check it out because you're in it with also another friend, Lisa Wilcox. Uh, so yep. talk about mystery spot.
0: Uh, yeah, mystery spot. Yeah. We actually filmed that outside of Houston, Texas, uh, filmed that a couple of years ago. Um, this is before the pandemic is when we filmed it. Um, yeah, it's me uh, uh, and Lisa Wilcox from Elm Street Four and Five is also in it. Uh, she was a delight to work with. And essentially, it's about um, I, I play a guy who lives at a motel out in the middle of nowhere. Um, I record auditions for some mysterious person. I don't even know who I'm recording auditions for, uh, and I mail them off on mini DV tapes. Um, and and uh, but part of the reason why I'm at this particular motel is that this motel has strange properties. It's on the site of an old mystery spot roadside attraction that has since burned down. Uh, But what happens when night falls is that people, I people that have left your life, whether they be dead or whether they be uh, maybe people that you, um, that you no longer are able to see in your life, uh, they reappear to you and you're able to spend time with them. Um, And so I uh, I I am in the aftermath of of leave, of having my wife leave me and taking my daughter with her, and so at night um, there are ghostly images and ghostly visages uh, that visit me. Um, it's a really heartfelt movie uh, directed by Mel House, uh, who he he was my first AD on Sequence Break. Um, fantastic director um and he uh he very kindly asked me to be involved in this movie um and he really wrote a a, a script that was uh uh it, it it had a lot of had a lot of heart and had a lot of soul um and is really trying to say something um and uh, so yeah very proud of my work in that i think this is probably going to be its last um, stop on the festival circuit I believe that it's already got uh, some kind of a distribution deal in place that I'm sure we'll be hearing about shortly but yeah mystery spot uh, whenever you come across it please check it out uh, very proud of it um, it's a it's a really beautiful little film
1: yeah and I, I should also mention that I believe the leech won uh one best feature correct
0: it won best feature yes it did yeah. very very proud of that right. yeah thank you yeah
1: yeah, that's very. Nice. Yeah, definitely check out both of those films. I think you're gonna. I mean, I'm excited to see Mystery Spot. So I might actually still have time to check it before the window closes tonight. <laughs> I think I've got another like hour and a half to start it before before it goes nice. away off the CFF site. Nice. Uh, but nice. yeah, check out chatfilmfest.org for more information about them. They'll be back next year, I'm sure, and they do an awesome job there, Chris Dorch and all those folks. <laughs> I think. We um, I, do wanna, I
0: do want to. I do want to jump in and say regarding my Godzilla talk. Uh, the reason I gave the Godzilla talk uh, was because I wrote a book with Toho Studios about Godzilla and about the franchise, uh, and it's called Godzilla, the Ultimate Illustrated Guide, and it comes out September 13th, so you can pre-order it now on Amazon, uh, and I encourage you to do so. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's gonna be fun, and, and, uh, you know, as we were talking about how all of us love, uh, you know, adolescent kids getting introduced to horror, Uh, godzilla was a big part of that for me and so this book is absolutely written for that age group um you know and and of course the adults that we all are uh also loving that stuff um but it's really you know it's written for that that group to uh really get them excited about about one of my favorite franchises Was, was, was
2: was matt frank involved in that at all
0: no no it was uh yeah have you met matt yet I have not met Matt. He's a local
2: he's a local artist here in town that runs in the same circles that we do. Who is he he is an artist for Japanese Godzilla comics. And he is. Uh, Well, we have to meet. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, like he literally. I mean, come on. Yeah. He 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 has what easily the largest Godzilla collection in Austin of anything and everything Godzilla related. So Jesus. okay. well, we have to
1: blown.
0: Yeah, this is great. This is great. Uh, Dog, doggy doggy play 8 with godzilla
1: um graham where can folks find you on the socials at graham skipper on twitter yeah twitter's where it's at i do and i'm gonna ask Cargill the same thing but i want to encourage folks if you're a screenwriter you should be following Cargill on twitter because you're about 100%. the most the helpful generous person on twitter when it comes to that i mean it's it's really remarkable but where can folks find you there
2: you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at massworm That's M-A-S-S-A-W-Y-R-M.
1: That's right. And I'd encourage you to do so. Um, quick quick plugs. Uh Incinerator is back on July 7th with our episode on Jennifer Jason Lee, where Sam Inglis and Jason Sean do battle incinerating her films one by one until only one remains. And it was wild and it did not go the way I expected. Check it out. Um and then on Letterboxd socials at Movies with Gravy, we'll put up our mixtape on Letterbox for you to check out and it will be available to you there. Um, you know, thanks for listening. Graham Cargill, thanks so much. That was so much fun.
2: Thanks to for you. having us.
1: No, and go yeah, see Black you. Phone. Go see Black Phone. It's in theaters now and for a while longer. Check it out. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. And till next time, y'all come back. You hear? Movies with Gravy is hosted by me, Billy Ray Bruton, and produced by Ryan Barrell. Theme song is Country Roses by me, Billy Ray Bruton, and Flannery Whaley. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and join our Patreon army at patreon.com incineratorpod. And remember, movies are great, but they're better with gravy. Y'all come back now, you hear?
0: tree roses, blessed songs, mommy's here, daddy's gone, broken promises, gin and rye, all the mean and hurtful things that make baby Jesus cry.